Hi, this is Keith Kefchin, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders an outlet to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Welcome to another episode of Dollars and Drivers. Today, we're going to be speaking with Bill Walsh, the CEO of Viceroy Hotel Group, and he's going to be talking a great deal about what he calls destination-driven leadership and also the concept of chief pride officer. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I want to talk to you about those personal and professional motivations, things that have been the driving force for your success. If you could articulate, that'd be great. Happy to. I think for me, Keith, it's about focusing on on um, the purpose and not just the process. I think that process has to be a result of a clearly defined and, and highly articulated purpose in order to get to a particular uh, destination. At Viceroy, we have a very activated ideology in the organization. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a cultural roadmap that serves to be a business roadmap. And sometimes I find it very curious, and I don't understand why organizations separate out the culture platform from the business platform, because clearly one drives the other. If you don't have a clear understanding of what the culture of an organization is supposed to be, as a leader, how do you lead it in a way that will continually communicate to all stakeholders, internally and ex- externally, what is important to the organization? What, is the, what are the ethical principles of, of the organization? What are the values uh, and not just financial values? So for me as a leader, it's about understanding the why um, and not just the how. And I find that in hospitality, we're not very good at that. Uh, we have standard operating practices for everything from how to open a car door and arrival, checking people in, making sure we get the data for input at the point of sale, yeah. uh, making a bed and serving a coffee. And it's very prescribed. I think few times do people actually understand why they're undertaking those processes and what they're doing and what does success look like. And, and, and what I've learned over my career, and I've learned it from working for extraordinary people, um, is you know, as a leader, don't be afraid to communicate purpose. Don't be afraid to be honest in conversation. Don't be afraid to ask people that are junior to you in the organization for help. That's actually a demonstration of courage and not a demonstration of weakness. Uh, I I remember reading your book about the loneliness of leadership. Um, And it's actually very true. You are, you're at the top. You're expected to, to have all the answers, be able to make all the decisions flawlessly and to lead from the front. And humanity doesn't work that way. And I think that what we're seeing, and particularly at a time like now, with with the pandemic having the effect in our industry that it's having, the leaders that I see excelling are those who are not afraid or indeed ashamed to demonstrate their vulnerability, make very human one-to-one connections with the people around them, to treat company like family, um, and to have an honesty of conversation, communication, and journey in the same way uh, that a a family does. So I I guess a long-winded answer to to a very concise question, which I would sum up as saying as a leader, any leader at any level, I think for me, the greatest demonstration of courage uh, is asking for help. It's admitting that you haven't faced something before, are not sure what to do. And the recognition that as a collective, we make better decisions than individuals, but as a leader, when you've taken everybody's input, it is your job to make the final decision and then to own it and live with it. 
Yeah. How did how did you get on this path? I'm always interested to talk to people because I interview so many. How did you make the choices that you made? There are so many alternatives, uh, but how did you get on this particular path? Are you happy with the path that you took? Well, to answer the last question first, yes. I, I as cliched as this sounds, I, I can't remember a morning when I've woken up and have not looked forward to going to work. Not enjoyed what, what I've done. Um, somebody paid me a great compliment recently. I was talking about the opening um, of our new hotel in Washington, D.C., the Hotel Zena. And I got so excited talking about it. They said, Bill, speaking to you when you talk about the brand, when you talk about hospitality, is like talking to a five-year-old kid. And that kid is in a candy store. And better still, the kid loves candy. Um, and, and, and I feel myself very fortunate to be in that situation. How I got on the path is also kind of quite cliched. Um, I, I grew up in a town called Limerick in Ireland, and um, my mum's cousin, uh, 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 an inspirational character in my life, a guy called Dermot Dwyer, who, who was two times the president of the Irish Hotels Federation, had a guest house um, in Limerick, and uh, he needed somebody to take out the trash twice a week. So twice a week, Keith, on a Tuesday and a Thursday, I'd get on my bicycle, I'd cycle about two and a half miles to the guest house, I would wheel the trash cans down this very high hill, uh, leave them there, and then cycle back the following morning after a trash collection had happened to bring the empty trash cans back into to the trash room. And in so doing, I got a little peek at what this guest house thing was. And, and that led me to, to, to be interested and call on another family favor. And I got a job as a trainee manager in the Royal George Hotel in Limerick. They sponsored me academically, but not financially, to go to uh, hotel school. And that's all I've ever wanted to do. It's all, all I've ever done. So, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a trash room to, to boardroom career. Um, and, and believe me, Keith, there have been occasions when I've been in the latter wishing I was back in the former. Understood. Uh, let me paint you a quick picture because, I, again, I happen to like sports analogies. And I think about the New England Patriots in particular. Uh, I don't really particularly like the team because I'm from New York and they're in Boston. Uh, that said, uh, people talk about the Patriot way. Uh, that again, there, there's a, a mission, a why, win the Super Bowl. There's a how, we're going to beat the other team senseless. Uh, but it's uh, the way in which they do it. Everyone seems to have the same field, the same amount of dollars, the same amount of everything. Everything's supposed to be equal yet uh, they happen to be a dynasty over the last two decades. Uh, do you chalk that up to a playbook? Uh, do you chalk that up to just good luck? What makes that different? And, and how do you relate that to how you make Viceroy different in the marketplace and everybody else who's doing the same thing and has the same passion? I think from a leadership point of view, the teams like that that succeed and the businesses that I see uh, succeed in a very meaningful way are those who put equal emphasis on their willingness to react to circumstances uh, as they do to, to be proactive and try to predict circumstances. Because life gets in the way. And, and sometimes businesses and sports teams will set out on a path based on a set of assumptions. And when those assumptions do not materialize in the way that they had been planned, they freeze. And they're like, but wait, this isn't what the playbook said. The playbook said that we would be able to do X. And now Y has occurred. And they stand there like a deer in the headlights. And I think it's, um, 
you know, people talk about speed of deployment as being the secret of success. I actually think it's speed of reaction. And I think that as a leader or a manager of a team, um, what we are in reality is we're, we're GPS, we're satellite navigation for, for our business or for our team. When you think about satellite navigation and how most people use it, you set it in your car when you're going from point A to point B, but you've got a pretty good idea of how to get from point A to point B. But what it, what it gives you is the confidence that if you come up against unexpected circumstances, if there's an unexpected obstacle blocking the path you thought you could take, the satellite navigation system will recalculate the journey, but what it will not do is change the destination. And I think that the teams and the businesses and the leaders that are very successful are those who are utterly fixated on the destination, on the achievement of that success measure, whatever it might be, but have the reality of understanding that the predicted path to get there is probably not going to be the path ultimately followed because we can only control what we can control. And there are circumstances in life that emerge unexpected that we cannot control, and therefore we move from control to react. So the great sports teams, and you pick a, you know, an American football analogy, I, I will pick the original and, and quite frankly, the better football, which would be soccer. Um, yeah. And I think of some of the great managers like Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. People look at, at, at the, the success that Alex had over more than a decade and, and the number of, of championships and, and tournaments that they won not because of the team that he put out in the field, but how he managed during the match to react to the other team's play and reshaped his team by effective use of substitution in order to, to be present in the moment that has occurred, not the one that he anticipated. I think I know the answer to this, uh, but uh, how do you think then ad adaptability? It sounds like it's important, but the, the ability to adapt and be flexible in your business life uh, and equate that to success. I, again, I, I'm assuming that one in the, in the same, but. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's um, everything, but I think that uh, adaptability and, and being reactive to circumstances is only effective if you're still keeping your eye on, on the end destination. If you were in your car and you were driving from Boston to New York and you thought you could take a particular highway, and suddenly there's a, a semi jackknifed up the road, which blocks it. And your satellite navigation system said, take the next exit. And you did. And then it said, I don't know where to go now. You think, well, I'm going to switch you off because there's not much value here. She, you know, satellite navigation has adapted. I'm going to get you off the freeway, but it hasn't resolved the issue by continuing to find an alternative path to the end destination. So yeah, adapt, but sometimes people adapt for the sake of reacting. Um, and then find themselves down, down a lost path, not knowing how to, to recover from it. Um, so it, it is adapting to a purpose, and that purpose has to be um, not sacrificing the original intention unless that intention is no longer relevant as a result of the change in circumstances. And how do you view and either learn and so forth from competition? Uh, how do you view everyone else there who's... Uh, selling a room, selling an experience, uh, and what can you learn from competition? Um, well, I, I approach analysis of competition from a place of respect. Um, I, I'm under no illusion that Viceroy does things 
that nobody else can do. And I hear my competitors talk about that, about their own brands all the time. And we all do the same thing. And we all do it extremely well. It is the authenticity with which we deliver the experience. And it is that, that celebration of the individuality of, of the factors that contribute to an experience. And those individuality factors might be the location of a hotel or a resort, um, the unique aesthetic architecturally or, or design-wise. And the most individual thing are the human beings within the four walls of the experience who are there to interact with other human beings, our guests, in order to help those guests create memories that, that will last them for a lifetime. So I'm very respectful of, of competitors. Um, I, I admire many of the things my competitors do. I try as frequently as possible to stay in other people's hotels, even if I'm returning to a destination where Viceroy has a hotel, because it's easy to become institutionalized within your own company. And sometimes stepping out and feeling the vibe and interacting with people in a different brand, understanding how they are approaching design can be inspirational. And I, I, I'm, you know, my ego doesn't get in the way of being inspired by my competitors and trying to build on what they have done if they have done it before me, particularly when it comes to the introduction of technology. Um, I have stayed in other people's hotels and I have interacted with technology that has impressed me. And I've picked up the phone to Darren, our, our VP of IT, and said, hey, Darren, I just found this thing. I took a video of it. Um, I'm sending it to you now. It's cool. We should be doing something like this. How right. can we maybe not replicate, um, but how can we, we take the inspiration of somebody else's success? Um, and then sometimes you, you encounter things that don't work in other hotels or hotel companies and learn from it. So what we try to do, Keith, is we bring it all together in an exercise at Viceroy that we call Stop, Continue, Start. And a, a few times a year, we step back as a management team from the business. And we talk about everything that we are doing, everything that we're allocating financial resource to, human resource, focus. And we categorize them in one of those three buckets. Is what we're doing creating value? And if it's not, we need to stop doing it. What are we doing that creates value that is the heart of the expression of culture, the ideology and the DNA of the, of the brand? And we, we need to protect that. We need to make sure we continue doing that. And what have we seen our competitors do that we're not doing? What have we seen in terms of market changes that require new behaviors to be brought about within our company that we haven't yet introduced? And we need to start at doing those things. And much of, much of the start is, in fact, inspired by um, what we see happening in the, in, in the competitive marketplace. And, and we, we, we jump on board. How does strategy and planning, you know, fit into overall success? I hear a lot of people use the word strategy. It's probably one of the most overused words yeah. uh, I find in business. Uh, and we like to plan. I've heard we're planners, we plan everything out, but how does strategy and planning fit into the Viceroy business model? I start every annual budget meeting with the same phrase, and, and this is it. A budget is nothing more than a numerical interpretation of a set of specific assumptions, and those assumptions are valid for one moment, and this is that moment, and now it has passed. And again, I think having a plan, having a roadmap, if it's a financial plan, as a budget, if it's a strategic plan, it's important because you got to know how you want to get. Again, back to my satellite navigation, you input the destination on the assumption that you can, you can follow the path prescribed. So it is important to do that. 
but it's a recurring theme. I don't want to bore your listeners. But a plan is only effective if you are effective at reacting to the circumstances around which and around when that plan does not go according to itself. The phrase is, you know, why did something get screwed up? Ah, it didn't go according to plan. Okay, well then let's not just fixate on writing the plan. Let's fixate on the contingencies in case that plan doesn't materialize. But clearly, strategic intent is something that leadership teams need to express. And sometimes it's done to create confidence in others. So if we're looking to expand the footprint of the company and there is financial investment required to do that, I need to convince my shareholders that we have a plan, that we have a strategy, and that that strategy is a value-creating strategy. Um, And therefore, I will stand in front of them in a boardroom and I will present that strategy in a very compelling way. But it doesn't always work out that way. So I think you can't run a business without having strategic intent. You can't run a business and be a leader without expressing and articulating it, but you, you can't be handcuffed to it. You know, you may have to separate yourself from that expression of strategy um, if circumstances um, prevail in, in an alternative way. How do you, talking dollars, because uh, it, it does sometimes get down to that bottom line, how do you equate, you know, pay, and performance. How do you quit? Maybe for your own uh, position, there's a lot of uh, obviously hot button issues around CEO pay, both for public and private companies. And how does that compare to the average worker? How do you equate how and what you're paid to the performance of you personally and, and the company as a whole? I think that compensation evaluation needs to take into account uh, everything we've talked about up to this point, which is what was, the, what was the stated intention for a business? And then what were the circumstances that prevailed that may have either made it easier um, or more difficult to achieve those targets? And then evaluate an individual's performance based on the circumstances within which they were operating Let's go back to the sports team analogy. If you have a, in soccer, a striker, the guy who's supposed to score the goals on the pitch, or no, I'll take the goalkeeper. And you say, right, your job is to, is to keep the ball out of the net, make sure that the other team don't score. And you're one of 11 players on the pitch, and four of those are defenders. So I, I have my expectation as a manager of you as my goalkeeper to, to keep a clean sheet. And then two of the defenders get sent off for fouling at players on the other side. And suddenly the goalkeeper only has 50% of the defense in front of him right. that he was expecting, but yet manages to save every ball. You kind of go to the goalkeeper and says, dude, you, I knew you were good, but you're exceptional. Because not only did you fulfill my expectation of you, you did it with very depleted resources that should have been assisting you. And therefore, I'm going to recognize you, I'm going to reward you, I'm going to, I'm going to bonus you, whatever it, it might be. And I think we should do the same in business. I think we should identify individuals who have performed in exceptional circumstances or or against exceptional challenge. And I think we should not be afraid to step outside the parameters of those very clearly prescribed compensation um, structures and say, you deserve more or not, whatever the case may be. So I'm in favor of a very individual view. Uh, Keith, I, I look at it that way here at Viceroy. Um, I don't believe that everybody with the same title should be remunerated in the same way. Some people are in uh, locations that are, are more competitive, that are more difficult to operate in. 
uh, have circumstances that they they need to overcome. And I think that 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 should be expressed on a very individual case by case basis. I'm also a great believer in random acts of kindness. I think as leaders, we should be expressing to our rock stars and that they are rock stars. And I sometimes hear leaders say, you know, the worst thing you can do is to tell somebody who's super talented that they're super talented because it goes to their head and then they demand more. I mean, do really? If you have, if you're lucky <laughs> enough to have somebody super talented, then appreciate them. Let them know that you recognize what they will have already recognized within themselves. Right. And then use compensation structures to create a lock-in that will keep them with the organization in a very competitive environment. And I think ultimately what I would say to, to leaders is we have to be prepared to break our own rules. Gerald Lawless, who, who I worked for, who was the CEO and then executive chairman of Jumeirah, and who I worked for for eight incredible years in Dubai, introduced what I think is one of the most visionary compensation-related programs I have ever seen in our industry. And he called it Colleagues of Exceptional Value. And it was a, it was a program specifically designed to recognize that if somebody has peaked in terms of their professional capability. So, you know, we're not going to promote this person anymore because they probably, maybe they don't want it or maybe they're extremely capable and efficient in the job that they're in, but would struggle to take one more or two more levels up in seniority. Why shouldn't we do two things? Why shouldn't we keep them in the job that they love, keep them in the job that they're great at, but pay them as if we promoted them? Because how lucky are we to have people in those roles that are exceptional? It was revolutionary and it worked. It couldn't have worked anywhere else because too many other companies say, if you're a grade six in this company, the maximum per hour you can be paid is X. And the only way we can pay you more is to make you a grade seven. So you make that individual a grade seven, knowing they're going to fail because they're, it's just not within them. Well, why not say you're the best grade six we've ever had, so you deserve to be paid as a grade seven and break the rules. And people who I see that do that create harmonious teams who have an emotional connection to, to the brand, as well as an employment connection, turnover decreases, productivity increases, absenteeism decreases, and happiness abounds. And isn't that what we're here to do? Yeah, it's one of the great struggles, I think, in our industry in particular. I'm sure it, it affects others, but my son is a chef, uh, and I know that he's now finding out the challenges of, you know, the waiter who got the big tip, and he's in the kitchen producing this wonderful product, uh, seeing very little of that financial reward for what he's doing beyond his base uh, compensation. And, you know, Danny Meyer uh, uh, has taken that issue on in, in great extent, but uh, it sounds like you, you've maybe found a way to put value on a position or an activity that goes beyond how it's valued in the marketplace. And I don't see why we shouldn't do that. And sometimes the reason things like that don't happen is because when the leadership team get together to talk about it and they might say that person A is fantastic, they're excelling, they're amazing, that they are kind of the heart of currently and the future of this company. And therefore, let's express that. Let, let's give them something over and above. And it often doesn't happen because other people in the room say, oh, but what would everybody else think? It's not fair. There are four other people with the same level or the same title in the organization. And we're not doing it for them. Well, why aren't we doing it for them? We're not doing it for them because they're not exceptional. They're, they have not stepped up and, and, and stepped 
onto the stage and, and seized that moment in the same way. So why hold one exceptional individual back because three are delivering mediocrity? Um, so what we've tried to do, Keith at Viceroy, is to make our decisions based on exceptional performance uh, and have that as the benchmark and, and not apologize if we are creating a greater emphasis on protecting ourselves by, by keeping in the organization those people who are doing the most and rewarding them more than people who may be perceived to be their equivalent in seniority, but people who are contributing less. Fair enough. How often do you consult others for advice, mentorship? You talked early on about some people who've impacted you, but that was early in your life. Now you're you know, big CEO. <laughs> and how often do you ask for help and, and ask for advice from others? Daily. I mean, depending on the circumstances, probably sometimes hourly. And it could be those people who are kind of physically in closest proximity to me. Um, you know, Tiffany, my PA, is amazing and, and, and puts up with the, the amount of questions that if I'm looking at, you know, I have to choose between four different logos. Um, she happens to be the closest person to me in terms of uh, office layout. I go, what do you think, Tiff? And then I, I you know, that's a very basic day-to-day example versus, Keith, I've never led a business through a pandemic before. And please God, I never will again. And there have been many firsts for me in this journey. And I have been unashamed of reaching out to people. I mentioned um, Dermot Dwyer, my mother's cousin, who owned the guest house where it all started for me. I mean, the last time I WhatsApp something to Dermot with either something that I had done and said, what do you think? Or a question saying, what would you do? Was four days ago. And that's close to 40 years after he created that first opportunity to me. You know, we had a, a weekly meeting of what we call the Viceroy Leadership Team. It's myself, it's the CFO, it's the COO, and we invite other people into the forum on an as-needed basis. Um, when pandemic started, we went daily. And the reason for that is that we could sit and we could ask each other what we felt the best thing to do was. Um, and then as a, as a leadership team, and me ultimately as the leader, would make the decisions on what steps we would take in these extraordinary circumstances. Again, just to kind of reiterate the point, but to put qualification around it, I think everybody should ask for help if you don't know what to do. It's stupid not to. I mean, if you're in a train station and you don't know what platform your train is leaving from, do you ask somebody who works there or do you just walk from platform to platform hoping to get lucky? You go up and say, excuse me, sir, I'm on the you know, 815 to wherever I'm going and what platform does that train leave from? And, and they tell you. So you've gained, you've been efficient and you've been honest in asking for help. Why is business any different? Um, but I'm not suggesting that businesses should be run by committee because I, I don't believe that that works. I think that the responsibility of leadership is to make decisions, but the way you make decisions is to seek input if you are not absolute in your understanding of the subject matter or the conditions that, that are influencing the decision that you, you need to make. So go out, ask listen, evaluate, filter, but then come to the conclusion and own your decision. And sometimes it will be right and sometimes it will be wrong. Last question. It's a broad one, but I'd be curious. What do you think uh, it's going to take for Viceroy to be a dynasty? And in general, uh, we talked about the Patriots, uh, Manchester United. Uh, What does it take to, to build a dynasty? Understanding what dynasty means to you in that moment and in that circumstance. 
because success measures are different. You can look at premiership football teams and they can compete, go down a couple of divisions. There's no point in a Division Three soccer team in, in the UK trying to emulate Manchester United's performance because they won't, because Man United have had the opportunity to invest probably a billion dollars in player acquisition over the period. And the smaller teams simply can't do that. So Viceroy is certainly not sitting here thinking, we want to be at the scale of Marriott. We want to have as many brands as Accor. We want to have global coverage um, like whoever else might be out there. Because that, that's their version of Dynasty. That's not ours. Mm-hmm. Ours, Keith, is to continue to be this glorious oxymoron. And that's what we are. We're an absolute contradiction. And where Viceroy lives is at the point of collision between the two opposing forces of consistency and individuality. And that's the phrase we use internally, consistent individuality. And the way we we create our dynasty and our legacy, and the way we create relevance and continue relevance to both our customers and our colleagues is to curate that moment of collision, to make sure that we have a sufficient degree of consistency in our, in our processes and in our platforms to allow us to do what needs to be done correctly. But my job is to make sure that I stop consistency before it becomes a force that suffocates spontaneity, individuality, and the willingness to try and fail and then try again. And that's where Dynasty and Legacy lives for us. It's authenticity. It's staying faithful to the path that we are on, the ideology of the brand, and the relevance to our stakeholders. That's, a, I think, a great way to end, Bill. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Keith, it's an honor to have been invited. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time, this is Keith Kefchitz. I'm here.